0: All right, good morning, Mercy Church. How we doing? Good, good, good. good. Hey, you got um, on your seat when you came in. You probably saw this orange square waiting for you. This thing is an Easter square, all right, because it talks about Easter and is in the shape of a square, Uh, We are very creative around here. And um, hey, here's the idea behind this. Easter's coming up, it's only a month away. And um, y'all, we have been saying for a good amount of time that we believe that God uses people to reach other people with the hope of Christ. And so a simple way that we talk about it is, man, there's probably one person in your life who is far from God but close to you That's who this square is for, okay? It's not for you. You're here, you're hearing the reminders and everything about Easter. It's for that person, for you to use, to invite them to come with you on Easter weekend, all right? Listen to this. You know that, all right, 80, this is a national statistic, a lot of research done on it, 82% of people who do not attend church are likely to attend church if invited by someone. 82%, yet... 2% 2% of church members invited someone to church in the past year. Y'all, so you hear that? Actually, I was shocked on both ends of that when I read it and looked it up and made sure we knew what we were talking about here with that. All right, here's what I want to do. We can't control the 82%, although I'm kind of impro- I was actually expecting it to be like 50%, you could say you got a 50-50 shot. No, uh, 82%. But we can't control that. We can't control people's response, but we can control the 2%. All right, and we can change that. So that's what this Easter Square is about. Listen, we're gonna have Good Friday services. We're gonna try a a big old Easter egg hunt um, for the whole family, not for college students. You come and you participate by helping, okay? We run around grabbing eggs. Um, High school students, same thing. You come and you help. All right, middle school students, I'm, I'm working on it. All right, I'm trying to get y'all in. Uh, but look, what we wanna do, we got an Easter egg hunt Saturday, and then we, of course, um, services on Sunday as well. And all that information is on here. So here's what you do. You go up to that person, your one. You know, we say, who's your one person? Go to that one, and let me give you the script, okay? You say, do you have plans for Easter? Now, manage your expectations for their response, okay? Um, their response is most likely not going to be, well, you know, I was... Um, I really want to go to church so I can learn about how I relate to God, and I was just waiting on someone to to maybe invite me to church. Do you know of any churches that that might happen? All right, but but most likely it's going to be a little bit of wonder why this person's asking. So just plan on saying, "I want to invite you to come with me," because that with me is everything. Okay. This is your one person. Be praying for them and invite them to come with you and let them take some time to figure it out, all right? And follow up with them. Now, we've got 1,600 of these, okay? That means there's enough for everybody to have a couple, But this one is for your one in particular, and then take a bunch of others and use that to invite our whole community, okay? I hope you come and join us for church, but definitely your one, all right? That's what the Easter Square is all about. Um, So you take that, and we'll get to work um, inviting folks to come and hear the gospel, y'all. It is still culturally acceptable to come hear about Jesus on Easter, and we need to take advantage of that because that that likely is the day that God has appointed to change people's lives for eternity, people that you know. And we want to make the most of that. All right, so uh, with that, let's jump in um, to our back into our series. We are in week three of our series that we're calling the Way of Jesus. We're talking about what it looks like to follow in the way of Jesus, to be His follower. And today, I'm just going to tell you, I believe uh, the the passage that we have is one of the hardest teachings that Jesus gave His disciples. At the same time, I believe it is mission critical for Mercy Church, and it. It might be a difficult um, message for you to hear today, all right? Um, But if we're going to be his disciples, and that's what Jesus says we are, if we're going to be his disciples, then um, we have to hear it. Uh, So we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 25. We're going to go to verse 33, so you can make your way there. Here's the way I heard one guy describe this teaching. He said, it's kind of like hard candy. If you just take it and try and crunch down on it, it's going to hurt your teeth, But if you sit with it for a little while, it might actually end up being sweet to you. And I feel like that's the way this teaching is. It's going to be abrasive at first. um, But the more you sit in it, the more it is actually good and nourishing to your soul. Um, Guys, bottom line, let me tell you kind of where I'm going today, um, where this passage is going to take us. It's simply this. There are no degrees of commitment to Jesus. You are either all in or you're all out. But that's where we're going today. And this passage is a very personal one to me. Um, 10 years ago... Uh, I was in the spring of 2009. I was sitting um, in church listening to my pastor preach this message. I just graduated from seminary about a year ago. We had one baby, had another baby on the way. And y'all, I didn't realize it until I was listening to this, but this was a pivotal moment for me because what I realized is um, I was trying to figure out how to build financial security long-term for me, how to to build career security long-term for me. I had a a church that was a lot larger than the one that I was working at that had come and is like kind of recruiting me. And I was like, oh, this is going to help me to really advance my platform to have national influence in the discipleship scene, which was the scene that I was um, serving in. And what I realized when this came down is that I had been trying to figure out how to advance Spence's name, how to advance Spence's glory among others. And this passage came after me. And what I realized is that I was in a glory war. Was it going to be my glory or Christ's glory? my name or Christ's name that my life was gonna be about. And that's, y'all, it was this passage, and so I'm even gonna pull a lot. This is an emotional one for me a little bit, and I'm gonna pull a lot from that In hopes that some of y'all have that same moment because it ended up being one of the most freeing things that I ever learned and ever put into practice in my life. So we're gonna jump into it, but that's where we're going. You're either all in or all out, all right? Verse 25, we got some work to do. Let's get after it. Now great crowds were traveling with him. That's Jesus. Let me set the scene since we've jumped from Luke 5, uh, jumped a pretty good bit, Um, Luke 5 the past two weeks. Main thing is that Jesus is now um, headed on a journey towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem, scripture says, and now everything in Luke's gospel is pointing towards Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. He's got this really big crowd following him that's really impressed by what he's done. Y'all, these are not just casual fans. These are really impressed fans. I mean, they're roadies, right? They're traveling with him. It's an incredible moment. As a, if you're a church growth strategist, you're like, sweet, we got some real momentum now, Jesus. Things are going really well. We can take advantage of this. This is, a great, this is great momentum for this ministry, And then Jesus looks at that crowd and drops this bomb. He turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Y'all, I'm telling you, this this wrecked me in a really good way. What's he talking about? Uh, let's we gotta dive in first. What does he mean by hating your family? This trips up pretty much everybody. i think a little bit because some of you you hear that in your spine, you go, I, "What do you mean, hate my? I can never hate my family. I love them so much. Why would he say that?" And others, you're like, "Hate mom and dad? Sure, already there. <laughs> right? Thank you. Next. Let's keep going. Uh, look, let's be clear." Jesus, in using this word hate, cannot mean hate in a way of like cursing them. Jesus consistently says we're to love our family, we're to even love our enemies, right? And it's actually been the experience of a lot of people that the more you begin to really follow Jesus, the more you start to love your family, love your spouse more, not less. So nobody who's a student of the Bible really thinks you should curse. You should have active animosity towards your family or yourself for that matter. Here's what this means. He's creating a comparison between our love for him and our love for anyone else, including ourselves. He's saying that our love for him should be so primary, so much greater than our love for anyone or anything else that our love for those other things should be like hate in comparison to the fierceness, to the intensity of our love for him. If you've ever been in love with someone, you might have a little bit of an idea of what this feeling is like. Like when I first fell in love with Courtney, it wasn't that all of a sudden I started to like scorn and dislike all other women. No, it's just that they kind of faded into the background because I had found the best woman. Right. And I was just in love with her. All my attention and affections were focused on her. Jesus is saying that's how we, his followers, are to be towards him. He's to be the one object of our desires. And listen, listen to this word, our commitment to him is to be so absolute that our commitment to everything else, even great things like family, family's not a bad thing, even great things like family pales in comparison. Can we all just Let's just take a moment and acknowledge how audacious this is. Y'all, here's why why I say that. Sometimes people talk about Jesus, especially skeptics, be like, yeah, but I mean, Jesus was a good teacher. Um, No good teacher demands absolute love and obedience like this. This is absolutely him claiming to be God. There's only two options for us to view him. And just good moral teacher is not one of them because they wouldn't do something like this, all right? Either he is God or he is the mayor of crazy town, okay? That's really all that he leaves room for us. And it's passages like this where you start to see that really come out of who he's claiming to be. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna show you a few implications of his words here. I'm gonna bring in the next few verses because um, they're there to help reinforce and explain this teaching. That's why verse 28 starts with the word for. It's explaining these two verses. I'm gonna show you some things about being a disciple some things that Jesus is really confronting us with here in this passage. I think I got three. I might stretch one of them into a couple, we'll see. But it's all built around this basic premise, you're either all in or all out. And you can hear that in his words right there, all right? Here's the first thing that I see in this, and that's the discipleship, which is following Jesus, right? Becoming, Being made more into the image of looking like Jesus, right? Living like he lived. Discipleship is total surrender, I mean, look at what he's saying. Nothing comes before him. Not your dreams for your legacy. Not your dreams for your children. None of the really great and important things in your life. None of them come before Jesus. In fact, they don't even even come close to your commitment to him. You see, a lot of times people will approach Jesus as something they'll eventually get around to. You know, when they settle down. I mean, I've seen this way too many times. People leave Jesus when they leave for college because they don't really sense a need from him. And then eight to 10 years later, they have their first kid or or maybe a big life experience of some kind. Like, yeah, you know, maybe I need Jesus now. And Jesus becomes a means to make your life feel better, maybe feel a little more grounded so that you can go on with life. Look, I'll, I'll grant Jesus meets you where you are. That's a good thing, right? That's good news. We've been talking about that through this series. But he's not your like little personal hallmark channel. He's not here as your means to an easier, more pleasant life. He says if you want to come to him, he has to be the purpose and point of your life. In fact, as you read verse 26, Anyone comes to me, does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, can't be my disciples. Look, we do not use him to get a better family, to get a better marriage, or to get better children. You don't use him to get your best life now. That's using him to serve your ends. Instead, he's calling for quite the opposite. You use every part of your life to get more of him. He is the end, which means... If you ever have to choose between serving Jesus and serving your family, you always choose obedience to Jesus, which I know is not easy to hear. There's a, uh, the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the just great books of Christian history. Um, his name's John Bunyan, and he was put in prison for preaching the gospel during a time where it was illegal to do so where he lived. And they told him, you can get out. All you, gotta do, all you have to do is deny the gospel. And he said that experience in prison was like, he he described it as pulling the flesh off of his own bones. And the reason was not just for, uh, it wasn't because he was in prison for denying the, for preaching the gospel. It was because his family was at home and they were poor already. He had, one of his sons was blind and he knew the hardship that this was causing his family. He knew it. He knew they were even in more abject poverty. Yet he said, and it's kind of a famous letter in the letter he wrote, he said, but I must be here, I must do this, I must. Y'all, you look at the image of the cross he uses in verse 27. The image of a cross is something a criminal carried, a criminal who was condemned to death, which is Jesus saying, you are no longer a free person when you follow him. The criminal condemned to death doesn't get to say oh, you know what, this is kind of hard. I thought this would be good for me and kind of inspiring, but it's kind of hard. This is too much. No, <laughs> criminal doesn't get to do that. Doesn't work that way because discipleship is total surrender to Jesus's authority. All right, that's uh, that's why he uses the two illustrations in the following verses. I wanna look at verses 31 and 33. We'll come back to 28 through 30 next. But he says in verse 31, what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other's still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does, who does not renounce all of his possessions. <laughs> all of them, not some of them, not lo- all of them cannot be my disciple. Kind of a, a simple illustration of his point. If you as a king are on the brink of battle, what you do is you, if you're a good king, you gauge the enemy forces. And if the enemy forces are too strong, you don't send the troops into battle because you're gonna lose. And it's gonna be very costly. Instead, you, you surrender, you make peace. And what most commentators say here is he's saying, Jesus is saying that you're the king with the 10,000 and God's the king with the 20,000. And when you realize you can never win against God, which is part of the moment of coming to full surrender. You realize, I could never win against God. You settle for peace. But the only peace God grants is absolute surrender. So you can either make war against God and lose, or you can go ahead and come to God with total surrender. And some of y'all know, some of y'all's stories are, I chose to make war against God. And then eventually, in his grace, he allowed that war to stop. And I came and I surrendered my life and found true life. In other words, y'all, following Jesus will cost you everything you have, but that's still not as much as not following him will cost you. It'll cost you everything. The image of the kings at war is sending the same message as the message to take up your cross. That image, that was what got me because I was a king trying to build my kingdom, and I realized that I was... that I was always gonna be in a glory war with God until I laid down my life and took up his glory and his purposes for me. Jesus doesn't say, take up my teachings and follow me. He doesn't say, take up my moral code and follow me. He says, take up my cross. Take the place of a condemned criminal. Jesus refuses to work as your spiritual guide designed to make you a little bit more of a moral person. He comes as your master, he comes as your king, and he calls for absolute surrender. Y'all, that's why when we do baptisms around here, you'll hear every time we baptize someone, we ask them two questions. We ask them, do you believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? Baptism is a beautiful moment. It's a celebration, but we just have to make sure we're celebrating and calling someone to the life of a follower. So we say, do you believe he's done everything necessary to save you? That's a question of, is he your savior? But then we ask him a second question. And it's a really important one. Are you willing to go wherever he tells you to go? And are you willing to do whatever he calls you to do? Do you hear what's in that question? That's not just, is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Is he your king? Is he your master? Have you replaced your answers to those questions? Like you is the authority over that now with Jesus. And Jesus gets to call the shots in your life. Because listen, a false discipleship. One that we will not settle for here at Mercy Church is one that says he can be your Savior and not be your Lord. It's just not what's sitting right here in front of us today, which I think leads right to the next thing about discipleship. So let me bring in verses 28 through 30. Look at this. He says, for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he actually has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will be, begin to ridicule him, saying this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. I mean, it's pretty easy, again, to understand, right? But remember, it's coming right after saying, right after this is an explanation of this, you gotta deny everyone, even yourself. You gotta take up your cross and follow me. What he's saying, if you're gonna follow him, you need to make sure you're ready for that. In short, discipleship is costly. It's costly. If we're gonna build a tower, you you would make sure you had enough money to complete it. You don't wanna get into it and realize you cannot afford to finish. The point is you need to think about it. There's a guy named John Stott who um, wrote one of his books, something that I think is just a prophetic word. That's still very. This is several, uh, three decades ago, I think, uh, maybe a little bit less, but still very, um, very important, even for us today, I think very prophetic. Here's what he said. He said, the Christian landscape is strewn about with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. And then here's what I'm gonna have on the screen for you. Large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion, it protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape in order to suit their convenience. No wonder cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Again, I am telling you this as your pastor who loves you so much. But brothers and sisters, we must count the cost of following Jesus. Take up your cross is a call to personal sacrifice. Now, it is a call to the kind of personal sacrifice that Jesus would make first. I mean, think about how this landed on ears at the time right? The cross was an execution device and a slow execution device at that. I mean, can you imagine today some guy trying to get followers? Like, you imagine a presidential candidate, you know, that's starting to, you start to hear that noise ramp up now. Um, Can you imagine a presidential candidate giving a stump speech like this? Today's a new day. Come join in on my cause, you know, strap yourself into the electric chair and prepare for a slow, painful death that you can believe in. You know, like, it wouldn't make any sense at all. But Jesus is clear here. He's saying he will not be used. He will not just fit into your life. He is not just safe, but he is good. You know, just everybody feels like, or it's very common for people to feel like, they're kind of two levels to Christian. There's a a JV and a varsity or something like that. There's the normal run in the mill every day, and then there's like the people that are really devoted. But with Jesus, there's none of that. Everybody has to take up their cross. It's not optional. It's not like just for the Marines of Christianity, the ones that are gonna go be overseas missionaries or something. You can't say, look, I'm a Christian. I'm just just not into all that sacrifice stuff. You're either all in or you're all out. And I know it's crazy. (laughs) I know it sounds crazy, I should say. But to walk in the way of Jesus means your life, just like his, is characterized by costly sacrifice for his mission and radical generosity towards those who don't know him. My old pastor showed me something, again, like I said, this is so impactful for me that was really, really helpful in breaking me free from that nominal half-built tower Christianity. He said a lot of people think of Jesus as the spiritual governing power that they have to pay spiritual taxes to in order to live a somewhat trouble-free life. And I was thinking about we're in tax season right now, right? When you pay your taxes, what are you doing? You're doing your civic duty, right? Very few of us are like, I love the government with all of my heart. I live for it. I wipe away tears of joy when I pay my taxes, and I thank the sweet IRS for the opportunity to be involved in this great pursuit. No, very few feel that way, all right? Most of us, we pay our taxes because we want to be good Americans. We want to avoid jail, right? And in the same manner, here's what happens. We kind of take that and we translate that over to Jesus and we say, well, we know good Christians tithe, live morally, come to church. These are our spiritual taxes that we pay so that Jesus will bless our life. What we're seeing today though, y'all, Jesus is calling us all together to something much different. He's calling us to a life where he is the ultimate end. His mission is the goal. His glory is the goal of our lives. He's saying our lives are best spent being poured out in celebration of him, for his glory, and in a way that we serve others. Totally different mindset, totally different lifestyle. Instead of spending your life thinking, how much do I have to give to keep God off my back? You spend your life asking, what more? What more can I do to help the gospel go farther, faster around the world? How can I leverage my life to reach people and help people that'll never pay me back? You see how upside down this whole thing is? So what what does it look like for you? Application. Um, I'll be honest, I don't have this all figured out. I mean, 10 years after hearing this, I feel like I'm still learning so much and bringing this back again, and, and still that glory war starts to come up from time to time, right? I recognize also that as we um, grow older, sometimes the Lord blesses us and increases our wealth. There's places in the Bible where God shows um, that he blesses hard work and Proverbs talks about wise men building wealth. You know, that's all good things. All I know is, I know that being a follower of Jesus means living like he lived, which was costly. It was sacrificial. So that I, what I know is, and what you kind of take and you figure out how it applies, <laughs> I must live for his kingdom and not mine. So that, I feel like that's a bit, and one, some of the, one of the questions, sorry, one of the questions you may have to ask yourself is, what do I do if I assess my life and realize that I've been living kind of a, a half-built tower life? Let me call you to the real power of the gospel here. Jesus is never gonna try and put you in like a gotcha situation. Like, oh, you didn't know you signed up for all this, but I gotcha now. No, maybe, maybe it is that you've just never heard this before. Listen, the great news is that true joy, true joy, the joy that you were created as a human being, the true joy you were created to experience is always found in full-fledged obedience to Christ. In my experience, the most miserable people I know are half-tower Christians, who, who were never really just kind of, they're kind of hanging on to their life, but kind of living their life for him, so they never find true life. So the response, you need to go back and abide in Christ's love for you. The best time for you to surrender everything was yesterday. The next best time is today, all right? And when you do, what you're gonna find is joy. It's joy that awaits you when you surrender your whole life to him. It's one of the things that uh, we try and get, Try and get in front of you. We say it often around here is to lift your eyes up off of the everyday, of the mundane. And part of that means releasing control of your life. And when you release control of the things you've been trying to hang on to, your career, your family, everything else, and you're like, you're not the one driving your life anymore, but Christ is, right? You come and die to self, live for Him, and your hearts and the eyes of your heart start to lift up and you see the beauty and majesty and glory of God. And when you do, y'all, that changes you. And all of a sudden, surrender becomes an access point to joy and to awe and to worship. If you're like, I just never really had that. Well, this is what Christ is saying. you got to come and die so that you can truly live. The way um, he says it in Luke 9, he says, anyone who wants to save his own life is going to lose it. But anyone who actively loses his life for my sake will find true life. you got to lose your life so that you can find true life. That's what counting the cost means. Are you ready to give up your life, your dreams, to let him be in charge? And if he's in charge, it means he decides where you live, he decides where you work, he decides what kind of car you drive, who you date, how you date, what kind of house you buy. I mean, have you ever made decisions that way? Have you ever brought Jesus into your budget meetings with your family? Brought Jesus into your career choices? Brought Jesus into your relationships? Y'all, I know that if you've never done before, it sounds a little like invasive. Yes, (laughs) but when you examine your whole life under this new filter, it'll change you. For some of you, you'll be finally free of the American dream. I'm telling you, the American dream is the biggest lie and it is in direct conflict with following Jesus Christ. The American dream that says you need to be in a good school so that you can graduate, get into a good university. Uh, And when you're in a good university, you need to do really well so that you can get a good job. And because if you get a good paying job, then you'll be able to have um, good financial security, be able to have a good, happy family, right? And be able to the rest of your life in good peace and calm. It is the pursuit of happiness that's written into um, the very fabric of our society. And it is in direct, direct conflict with surrender your life to follow Jesus. So you're gonna have to choose. And I'm telling you, you're gonna be free when you finally lay that down. Freedom and joy awaits you. Jesus says, his glory, that's your new dream. For some of you, it'll mean doing what um, our friend Catherine Mitchell did. And you quit your job and move to an unreached people group to share the gospel. Because if Jesus is calling us is to spread the great news of his love and 3.14 billion people don't know the gospel, then more of us should probably be moving our lives. I mean, how can we say that we carry the cross and that story not be more common? This is why we take, by the way, why we take short-term trips all throughout the year, college students, this is why we do City Project, to give you the chance to deny yourself and see what it would look like to live for God and his purposes. Now, some of you, this may mean you will not go yourself, but it means you radically increase your giving to God's mission. I mean giving of your time, and I mean giving of your treasure. Where are the believers who reverse the American dream narrative, the ones who downsize homes, cars, and vacations so they can give more and be more all in to God's mission? Here's the next thing I want us to see, probably the last thing for today, about the discipleship he calls us to. And it's one you might not see at first glance, um, but it's this discipleship, it's emotional. I mean, look at how Jesus set up the contrast between he and everything else. He could have used any number of words to communicate that he's in charge, yet he chose to speak in terms of hate and love. That's intentional. Intentional and actually really helps me put this whole thing into perspective. Jesus doesn't want begrudging obedience to him. In all things, y'all, he's after your affections. He wants your love. Now, listen to me. I'm not talking about like, when I say emotional, I'm not talking about like an emotional frenzy that's a part of a momentary experience, okay? Where your, your emotions are manipulated or, or something like that. I'm not talking about that, all right? I'm talking about joy and I'm talking about treasure, that's why when he's asked what is the greatest commandment, he replies what? Love, Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your, all your heart, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. One of the common ways that he refers to his church in scripture is he talks about it as his bride. I mean, think about that. I, mean, I hate to, don't worry, Courtney has given me permission to use any time that I reference her, but think if I were to go to Courtney on date night, Husbands, you should regularly date your wives. Another sermon, but you should do it, okay? Um, But if I go to her and say, hey, babe, listen, I got a sitter for tonight. She's coming three hours early, okay? I got an appointment at the spa for you. I want you to go to the spa, take your best dress with you, go to the spa, I want you to relax. And then after that, I go and I pick her up from the spa and and I've got flowers for her, right? And then I take her to a really nice restaurant. I mean, the kind of restaurant that has the best dinner, or the best chicken Parmesan that money can buy because I know my date and that's what she's gonna get no matter where we go. So might as well go to like where it's the best, okay? Um, she's gonna be like, we're sitting there, she would be like, why are you going so next level tonight? Now, if I were to respond to her and say, well, a couple reasons, you know, I, there's some things that I really need from you right now and I know I have to put in all this work to get them, and, you know, I this is what good husbands do. Like, I, you know, I want to be, I don't want to be a, a bad husband. I mean, if I'm honest, though, I'd rather not be doing this. I'd rather even be out with other girls. But good husbands are monogamous, and good husbands, you know, do this so that they can get things. So here we are. Do you think she would feel treasured? Do you think she would feel loved? I mean, she's going to have some words for me, but those aren't the words she's going to have. Right? No, of course not, because my heart isn't in it. So the actions don't matter. Listen, John 3.16 says, For God so loved, loved you. Listen, always, always, his affections for you, the way he talks about and the way he comes at you is with love. He loved you so much he sent his son. Jesus says, I, So as I have loved you, must you love one another the word that best captures God's feelings towards you is love. And he says, the best thing for you, abide in that love. Make your home in that love. When he demands complete obedience to him, he's not trying to burden you with a rule book. He's trying to actually show you the way to true life. The one calling you to follow him is the one who gave up his life in sacrifice for you. And if, because I know, listen, one thing I love about our church is people come in and they come in with some heavy burdens sometimes, uh, kind of church is like a, I had never been to church before, but I'm trying to figure this out and maybe God can help. And, and so maybe that's you. You came in just like, I need hope. And then you're sitting here throwing this additional burden on me. Listen, there's actually great hope in this. What Jesus is saying is that when you lose all those other things, when all those start to fade into the background, you will be able to see Christ and you'll be able to see his love for you much more clearly. Everything else you look to for love, for acceptance, for identity, everything will eventually let you down except Christ. And that's because you come in here looking for hope and I'm telling you, you were made all along for his love. You were made for it. So the most loving thing that Jesus can do is say, put down all those other things and and receive my love. Receive my love. Rest in my love and focus all of your affections onto me. He becomes your greatest treasure and there in his love, you will find peace. You will find the hope that you've been looking for. Y'all, by the way, this whole emotional thing, discipleship, discipleship is emotional. It's also uh, emotional because we are the agents, so to speak, uh, people are the way, the, the, the means by which God changes other people. If you're gonna make disciples, it's gonna be emotional bringing others along. You know, because uh, a lot of times you'll see people, they'll go one step forward and two steps back, and we are called to love them like Jesus does, which means patient, and at the same time, full on heart and soul love for them just like Jesus would. You know, the way Rosaria Butterfield says, you said, the gospel comes with a house key. I mean, sacrificing a lot of your time and energy for others to help others see Jesus and doing that with them over a long period of time. Um, my family's felt a lot of frustration in doing that and at the same time, a lot of joy. But the bottom line is we have felt a lot, right? And that's because discipleship's not mechanical. We're talking about the heart talking about the soul and bringing people to be more in awe of this great Jesus that we serve. Let me give you a couple of implications for us as a church as we kind of wrap. Listen, our clear vision as a church is to see a gospel awakening in our city and to facilitate it as much as we can. This area right now is crazy strategic for reaching the world. It's growing at an absurd pace that's only going to increase. You know, they project the Charlotte metro area will double in size in the next 20 years. Double, that's 2.4 million to 4.8 million. That's like Charlotte becoming Atlanta in 20 years, all right? And we have a chance to reach all those people with the gospel. We may not be able to help traffic. (laughs) That's gonna be on on there, but we can reach all these people with the gospel. The way of Jesus began in Luke Luke 5 with Jesus calling us to be fishers of men. Y'all, Easter is coming, We must deny everything else, be about his mission to bring people back to himself. Prayer, fasting, beginning, just start this week, start today. And then invite what an easy sort of target on the wall we have for just these next four weeks. Let me tell you an implication that I have, that this has for me as your pastor. This passage hit me that I must preach the scriptures fearlessly, even when it is offensive like today's passage is. You guys, we could preach easier messages around here. Certainly could draw crowds that way. But I know I stand before God for how I pastor you, and I gotta be more concerned about him. And so do you, which means you need to be okay when fewer people are back this, next week after a message like this. Y'all think about Jesus. He had a large audience. He was God, right? And managed to whittle his church down to 100 or so before he left. But those 100 changed the world. This isn't, he's not after a number of listeners. He's after followers. Now, a a clarification, a lot of you in here are spiritual seekers, okay? You're not sure about Jesus, about who he is, and you're like, well, do I need to leave? No, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about people who know that Jesus is Lord, but just want to accessorize their lives with him rather than really follow him in total costly emotional surrender. If you're not sure you're ready to follow, look, you are more than welcome here. Take all the time that you need to figure that out. And lastly, what does this mean for you? It means you gotta step off the sidelines and engage in the mission. It's what I see right now about mercy. I see a young church filled with a a handful of people that are really bought in, and y'all make me so hype. I love being your pastor. But I also see a lot of people kind of, a lot, kind of sitting on the sidelines, watching. And now it's the time to jump in. And I say this because if nothing else, God has called me, to make disciples and to pastor a church that is making disciples. I'm not some ringleader of an event, all right? Here's where we are right now. Members, you you lock in with me for just a second, all right? Right now, there are about 320 people here who are covenant members. That's who I'm talking to for this moment. The rest of you, your next step might be today, going to starting point and learning a little bit more about what it looks like to be a part of Mercy Church, okay? But members, listen, about 50% of our members right now are on a ministry team, Of any kind, okay? Uh, We got a kids team that is growing. We got a number, excuse me, we got a bunch of kids and the number of kids coming to Mercy Church is growing, but our kids team is especially in need of members. And we got half of Mercy Church members not serving right now. Now's the time. 45% of you give financially in a way that shows you're invested in what God is doing here at Mercy. That's got to change, Jesus says the church is his plan A, and we need to make some major moves over the next 18, 24 months. We need to make those together. We need to be all in together. Look, y'all, God has provided. And it just blows my mind, the story, the very brief, short story of Mercy Church. Just the past year even has been amazing. The past two months, I don't even have words for We finally made room to grow. The Lord is bringing people far from him and bringing them to himself. It's great. I feel like the Lord is honoring that sacrifice. And I'm like, y'all, more y'all gotta get in on this and see what he's doing and be a part of it. Watch him change your life and watch him change the lives of those you love through you. Now is the time. You cannot, listen, what Christ makes sure of in this passage is that you cannot be a spectator in God's kingdom. So jump in. Jump in with the rest of us. Everybody has a step. Every single person here has a step to take to lose their lives for the sake of Christ. So what's that step for you? Because there, when you lose your life, you actively lose your life, that's where you find true life. Let me lead you in just a brief response to this. Would you bow your heads, pray with me, and let me walk you through how to... Pray and respond to what God might be stirring in you. First, if you're not a Christian, hear this, we are calling Christ, not we, Christ is calling you to complete surrender. But it is the only way you will find true life. You're coming with the burden of your sin. And there are people in this room praying for you right now. There's always a prayer team praying for those that, that come and and worship with us. There are people praying for you as you finally, what Christ is calling you to, is to surrender. You've been in a glory war. You've been after your kingdom. You cannot win against God. But when you surrender to him, you don't find a dictator. You find a father who loves you. And you can have life today. You say, God, I'm coming home, I surrender, I give you my life. I'm turning from my sin, I believe Christ died for it, so I'm not punished for it, and I give you my life. I believe you're my savior and my Lord. Christian, what's the next step for you? Maybe it's your one, maybe. Maybe it's to get off the sidelines and and into the mission here plenty of ready-made opportunities for you to, to step off the sidelines and begin losing your life just a little bit. Just a little bit for Christ's sake. And there you will find more life. It's upside down, but it's the way that God has designed us to find true joy. What's that step for you? Christ, I, as I finish this up, I can't help but think we, I especially desperately need you here need your spirit to grant peace and hope and joy in the hearts of every single person that's heard this. I ask that Mercy Church will be a people that lays everything down for your glory. Not to us, Lord, but to you be the glory. Let us be a people of joyful, cheerful sacrifice. I beg you, Father, I beg you that that's true in my life and my family, joyful, cheerful sacrifice ready to lay down our lives. God, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for your patience, for your grace, for your overwhelming love towards us. What a loving, good, awesome God we get to worship. And so we praise you in the name of the one that's made that possible. In the mighty name of the risen Jesus, we worship you. Amen.